I'm sure that many of us, uh, at one time or another, have been called to appear for jury duty. You dread getting that thing in the mail. There's another day gone. But when you go and you show up at the, the courthouse, if you are selected from the pool, right, those jurors then will gather in the courtroom and everybody else gets to go home. And the first thing on the docket for selected jurors is you get instructions from uh, the judge and then you listen to the case. An individual is accused of committing a crime. Evidence will be presented, both evidence for and evidence against the defendant, whereupon the jurors then retire to a private chamber and try to reach a verdict. Now, part of the evidence that they'll have to sift through together is eyewitness testimony. What someone personally observed, personally observed or heard. Not that you heard someone else say they saw. What you saw and what you heard during the criminal incident that's being investigated. Now, back in the old days, like 30 years ago, an eyewitness had to raise his or her right hand, place their left hand on the Bible. I remember seeing this. And swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. This wasn't just something that they put on Perry Mason. This actually happened in courtrooms. That's what you did. You swear on a Bible. So help me God. Well, if you've been called to jury duty recently, you realize we don't do that anymore. You just raise your hand. But for centuries of Western law, that was the formula. An acknowledgement by the entire human court, judge, jury, defendant, plaintiff, attorneys, the public at large, an acknowledgement that God is divine judge. And he is witness to all the proceedings inside that human court. And as witness and judge, he holds all accountable for what goes on in that court. Now, the Bible is loaded with legal language, similes, metaphors, and allusions. The book of Acts and the story that the book of Acts tells is launched, of course, by Jesus himself in chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power, he tells his disciples, referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. 
and all the other ends of the earth that exist. Jesus' use of legal language here and elsewhere, it's deliberate. It's intentional, and it's rooted in the writings that are already centuries old in Jesus' day. All of it from the Old Testament, starting with Genesis in the beginning and all the way through to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament scriptures. So listen again to how Jesus talks. This is just one example that I pulled out from John chapter 5. It's page 946. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read some excerpts from this. This is Jesus being challenged by the religious authorities of his day. But just listen to how he talks about it. And picture a courtroom. Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony isn't valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You've sent to John, referring to John the baptizer, and he has testified to the truth. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You guys study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus frames that entire discussion with those Jewish religious leaders. He frames it as a courtroom in which he is on trial. Scholars call this the lawsuit or the courtroom oracle. It's one of the most frequently used literary motifs in all of the scriptures. Especially in the Old Testament, which is what, of course, they were all using. No New Testament yet. There are examples in the hundreds of this use of courtroom or lawsuit imagery. Jesus casts my witness and yours, of course, my testimony of what I have seen God do in my life. He casts that witness in the light of this enormous biblical backdrop reality. That is, and this is the reality of the world we live in, and this is why so much of the scriptures are cast in this kind of language. God is not welcome in this world. 
He is not recognized for who he is. He is not honored for who he is. God in this world is on trial. And therefore, so are all who place their trust in him. What, after all, is the whole purpose for a court of law? Is it not to do justice when wrong has been committed? And how can justice, true justice, possibly be served without uncovering the truth? As Jesus would say to his disciples, everything covered up will be revealed. That justice via truth will ultimately prevail. Now, not every believer, thank God, is a pastor. What a mess that would be. nor a prophet, nor an evangelist. Not every believer has every gift of the Holy Spirit. Far from it. But every believer, every single one of us is witness to what God has done called to testify in the court of the world to what one has seen God do in one's own life. There is no place in a courtroom for hearsay and rumor and gossip. Eyewitness testimony means what I have seen God. And there are no exceptions or exemptions. No Christian is ever excused from taking the stand and telling the truth when called upon to do so. This doesn't mean we're all supposed to stand on street corners 24-7 and shout out loud to everyone we see about what God has done. Unless of, course, unless, of course, that's what he tells you to do. But rather, as the Apostle Peter tells us, we are to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But, Peter goes on, do this, not belligerently, not aggressively, not angrily, and not defensively, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Which brings us, at long last, to the passage upon which I am to preach this morning. Pastor Tom actually gave us six 
chapters to cover today. So Jubilee is just going to have to wait a while. Just kidding, of course. We won't tackle all six chapters today. Sorry, Pastor Tom. What we're going to do... (laughs) I knew it would be. What we're going to do instead is look at the two bookends of these chapters. I know the math doesn't quite work out. It looks like five chapters, but it's actually six because of the introduction to chapter 22. But we're going to look at the bookends of this section, which is Paul's focuses on each book at the end of the bookend, is Paul's personal testimony of what he has seen God do in his own life. And we're going to use Paul's example as a model for us in crafting, if you will, our own personal testimony. So we're going to be focusing on the first bookend in chapter 22. It's a little shorter. Most minor variations come with the second bookend in Acts 26. But here's the scenario in brief. Paul is in Jerusalem. He's finally gotten to Jerusalem as Pastor Tom has been getting us closer and closer and closer with all these journeys back and forth and these stops at these different churches and everybody weeping and wailing at what's going to happen to Paul. Well, he's finally in Jerusalem and he's minding his own business in the temple. Not bugging anybody. He's not even preaching. He's just there. But he gets recognized by some Jewish religious leaders who have heard about him, and they're not happy that he is in the temple for a variety of reasons. Of course, they just hate his guts. That's the main reason. But they stir up the crowd. And so this riot starts. And the Roman soldiers run down to try to restore order. And Paul gets dragged out of the crowd. And then he says to the Roman Soldier, um, you know, could I speak to the crowd? And the guy says, well, I, I, aren't you that thug that was ra- causing a rabble rousers and tried to overthrow and started a revolt? Says, no, 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 no. No, I, I'm, a, I'm a Jew and I'm from Tarsus and just, could I speak to the people? So the guy says, okay. So Paul stands on the steps and begins to address the crowd. Now, notice when we go through this passage that Paul is not preaching. At least not in the way that he had during his three missionary journeys. And as far as we know, Paul does not share his personal testimony during any of his sermons. You read through the book of Acts, and every time Paul's in the synagogue or he's on the street corner preaching, he's either using natural law and common sense, or most of the time he's using the scriptures. Look, scripture says this, Jesus did this. Scripture's over here, look at this, Jesus did that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's usually Paul's, the essence of a Paul, Pauline sermon. 
but not here. The outline that Paul uses for his personal testimony, which I'm going to recommend we adopt the format, the framework, it's got three parts. Starting with who I was then. So we're reading, I'm actually getting to the Bible now. We're reading from chapter 22, page 989, first from verses 1 through 5. And even though I don't have a Bible up here because it's too clunky for me, I wrote it down exactly as it is on my sheet here. So the word of the Lord. Acts 22. So now Paul is standing in front of this crowd. Brothers and fathers, it's a Father's Day, I guess. Listen now to my defense before you. Now notice again, legal language that Paul is using. He's not in court. He's not on trial. Not yet anyway. But he's using his own testimony of what God had done with him as his defense, which sort of makes it not Paul's fault that all of this commotion is going on in the temple courts. They're all upset with him. And sort of Paul's way of presenting his defense is, hey, it's not my fault. It's God's fault because of what he did with me. Back to the word of the Lord. When they heard, this is a massive crowd of people in the temple courts. When they heard Paul was addressing them in Aramaic, which is the common language of that part of Judah. Jesus spoke Aramaic. They became even quieter. He speaks our language. Maybe we better listen. Paul continued, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought up in this city, he was raised in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. Now, this is not the law of Moses. This is the laws of Jewish tradition, which have grown up around the law of Moses over the past 500 years. That's what he's talking about. He goes on, I was zealous. I think the most accurate synonym for us is passionate. I was filled with passion. People always think passion is great. Well, it sort of depends. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way, meaning the Christians, to the death arresting and putting both men and women in jail as both the high priest and the whole council of the elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem to be punished. i.e., I hated Christians 
I was terribly enraged at them, he would tell Agrippa in chapter 26 when he actually is on trial. I was enraged. I wanted them dead. Preferably painfully. That's who I was. Then. Before. Christ. Who were you then? Who was I then? BC, as we used to say. Now, when thinking about who we were before Christ, we ought not to be gratuitous or graphic about all the bad stuff we may have done or said. It brings no glory to God when Christians compete for the title chief of sinners. Paul's already got that one anyway. But maybe you were burdened by normal human weaknesses, fear, anxiety, sickness, Self-hatred. Little or no sense of worth or value or purpose or reason for being. Feeling unknown, unseen, unloved, alone. Perhaps like yours truly, you had yourself locked up with pride, arrogance, moral superiority, and disdain for those of lesser worth than you. Rage, greed, lust, envy, coveting, deceitfulness. Who were you before you met him? The next part of Paul's personal testimony is, how'd you meet? He goes on. Chapter 22, verses 6 through 16, page 989. So he tells about who he was, and then he says, but then I met somebody. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, remember, to arrest and kill Christians... About noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, well, that's a sermon right there, which I won't preach today. Paul's out to kill Christians, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So completely does Jesus identify with his people. I answered, well, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who are with me, Paul goes on, remember this Paul talking to this crowd, they saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what should I do, Lord? The Lord told me, get up. 
And go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people, a witness of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? This is Ananias still speaking. Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, many Christians suppose they might like a Damascus Road experience like Paul's. No, you wouldn't. And nobody's gotten one anyway. Paul's conversion is entirely unique. It is not normative, for he actually met the resurrected Jesus on that road, in the flesh, as it were. This is no vision. This is Jesus, resurrected, just like all the other apostles had met Jesus, resurrected. This is not a mystical vision. Paul saw Jesus with these eyes. Before going blind for a long weekend. That and that alone is why Paul would be counted an apostle. As he would later write as one abnormally born. So what about us? There are still plenty of rather dramatic conversions going on out there. And maybe you've got such a testimony praise God if you do but if you've got a real dramatic conversion that usually means that he had to take extraordinary measures to get through to you certainly no badge of honor I've known many believers who can't even say when exactly they were saved when they met Christ can't pinpoint one specific moment in time I'm one of those people how did Christ find you who or what did he use to bring you to himself in faith how did you meet very few of us Came to Christ because everything was so awesome. Right? In most cases, something was wrong. Off. Missing. Sometimes horribly wrong. But somehow, you felt your need. And 
Jesus met you there in your need, whatever it may have been. Which brings us to the third part of Paul's testimony. Who are you now? What has changed? Again, the word of the Lord from chapter 22, page 990. After I returned to Jerusalem, Paul goes on, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly. This had been years before. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So for Paul... Those he once loathed as outsiders, the unclean, the unworthy, those heretical Christians, the entire unbelieving non-Jewish pagan world, which Paul despised with everything in his being. All of those people, Paul now lives to bring them in from outside into the grace and the glory of Christ. That's his life now, to make brothers and sisters of his former enemies. And for any who would enter in to the great international cross-cultural family of God in Christ. So let's be asking ourselves, how has Christ changed you? What's different for you since you met? That might not be as easy a question to answer as it sounds. I can assure you, I remain as susceptible to pride, arrogance, anger, greed, superiority, self-promotion, self-protection. I am as susceptible to the sins of the heart as before. But here's what's different for me. I'm no longer alone. I'm not on my own in any of it anymore, ever. In every struggle, trial, hardship, heartbreak, or fear, I have the living Lord Jesus Christ standing with me in perfect love and sharing with me his power and hope and strength and will 
to press on, to take the stand and tell the truth of what I have seen God do in my life. And what I have heard him say to me through his word and through his spirit in my life. He will do the same and more for any, for all who ask. This is the hope we bring. We're not all preachers, but we all bear witness to his great mercy and grace in our lives through our own testimonies to whomever God brings our way. Now we close with the song that Matt and the group taught us. And however your personal testimony formulates with the help of the Spirit in your mind and heart, this song is testimony for all of us. My worth, my value is in nothing but what Christ did for me at the cross. My value is fixed, right? And my ransom is paid in full, finished at the cross. This is a testimony for all of us. So if you're still not sure how you would put this together, you could just use this song. Let's sing together. Thanks again, team, for teaching this to us. God bless you. Let's stand together. Father God, you satisfy our soul. Thank you for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you through him and find rest for our souls. True satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, peace, everything we truly long for is in Christ alone. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to grow in our love relationship with him this week. Help us to go deeper with him, further with him than we've gone before. Thank you, God, that you are calling us by your spirit to be your people, to be your children who are dearly loved by their heavenly father. Thank you, Lord. Amen.